Our scripture reading this morning comes from Revelation 4 and can be found on the insert in your bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on on, on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder, And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Well, again, uh, good morning. And if you are visiting uh, Grace Community for the first time, we're so glad that you're here. My name is Jonathan Keenan, and I'm the RUF campus minister at the University of Memphis. Um, uh, Nathan Turquie, uh, the, the normal man in this pulpit, is away last week at GA, and I think this, the next couple of weeks he's on vacation. So it's an honor again for me to be in this pulpit and to open up God's Word. And uh, this morning we come to a passage in Revelation that was read earlier, Revelation chapter 4. So if you have a Bible or the insert in the bulletin, you can follow along um, as we kind of make our way through this grand and glorious vision. Um, But before we consider um, Revelation 4, I came across an article a couple of, sometime this past spring, and it was an article by, the guy, by a guy named Paul Maxwell, and it was entitled, When Your Twenties Were Darker Than You Expected. And after I read it, I realized that that could have been when your 30s were darker than you expected, or your 40s, um, or your 50s. Um, the funny thing is, I used this article in, a, in another sermon, and And I stopped at the 50s mark, and an older lady in the back yelled, or your 80s. (laughs) And then an older gentleman in the front row said, or your 90s. And so, wherever you are on this spectrum, 
whether you're 20 or you're 90s, Paul Maxwell in this article, he was, he was trying to articulate something that I think all of us experience, and that is there are certain times in life where, where death latches itself to our feeble frame. And we experience it in so many different ways. And this is what he said. He said, death latches its chain to our frame, slowly pulling us deep into an answer to the question, death, where is your sting? He said, our lives bring so many answers to that question. Transition, failure, desperation, accusation, responsibility, moral failure, stagnation, unfulfillment. And he goes on to say that there's at least five feelings that will overwhelm or disillusion the wandering saints on any given day. There's five feelings that will overwhelm or disillusion the wandering saints. And he says the first one is disappointment. I thought things would be better. I thought I would be better. I thought friendships would stay together. He said the first thing you experience is disappointment. Then he says you You'll go through despondency. I'm just not as happy as I used to be. You know, my, my joy mechanism, it's just, it's just broken. It's off. And I don't feel happy or experience joy like I used to. And that leads to despair where you begin to feel that nothing you do matters. And I'm going to be stuck here forever. That my parents or my spouse or, or my children are just always disappointed in me. All my friends are doing so much better than I am, and life just feels like a rat race. And that leads to doubt, where the church doesn't understand or address the issues I'm struggling with, or I feel judged by God all the time. I'm not even sure that God exists, and if he does, he surely doesn't care about where I am in this life. And then that leads to desolation, where you... You go and you don't feel the presence of God, or you haven't felt the presence of God for a very long time, or you begin to believe that friendships are, are superficial and fake, and you just don't have a place in this life that feels safe. Like, there's, there's no place that you can really call home. And I don't know how that lands uh, with you this morning, but I would imagine if, if we were honest, we've we've probably experienced all of those things at least one time in our life. Disappointment, despair, doubt, despondency, desolation. And I don't know where you are this morning. Perhaps you're here and you are struggling with disappointment. And you're doubtful. Or perhaps you are here and you just haven't, you haven't been in church for a very long time because you haven't sensed that God actually cares for you. But somehow you're here. And the question is this, what could John show us in Revelation 4 that might alleviate some of our fears, some of our anxieties, some of our doubts, some of our struggles? Because here's the thing, Revelation... The book of Revelation, the letter that John writes, he writes to Christians. And he writes this letter to Christians who are deeply worried, deeply anxious, and they're afraid for what's around the corner. 
there's heightened persecution. There's a high probability that they're going to be martyred for their faith. There's a high chance that they're going to lose everything for the cause of Christ. This is who John is writing this letter to, to anxious, fearful, tired, wearied, worried Christians. He's writing it to Christians. And the question is this, what could John show us in Revelation 4 that might actually alleviate our disappointment and fears? That he might reverse our cynicism and despondency? What could John show us this morning that might actually encourage the saints where they are in their journey to that celestial city? And what John shows us is a picture of God on the throne. What do anxious, struggling, doubtful, fearful Christians need? They need to see that God is on the throne. So let's pray this morning before we consider this grand and wonderful vision in Revelation chapter 4 and ask God to open up our eyes and open up our hearts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that we are in your house, your house which is a safe place for sinners, a house which is full of mercy and grace, which, which we have been singing about this morning. And it is our prayer this morning, Father, that you would send us your Holy Spirit and that your Holy Spirit would spotlight the beautiful and wonderful person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that our prayer this morning would be that we would see no man but Jesus only. And so would you hide us in the cleft of your rock so that we may indeed see your glory pass by and behold once again how beautiful and amazing the Lord Jesus is and that he is indeed a friend for sinners. We can't do this on our own. And so, Holy Spirit, we need you to come and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to be able uh, to absorb this message, to absorb your truth. And so would you do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I came across a, a very funny YouTube video recently. And it was a video of a guy who loves to prank fast food restaurants. I don't know if you've ever seen this guy, but what he does is he builds custom-made, uh, it's a custom-made costume that looks like a seat cover. And so he puts it over himself, and he goes through the drive through like per- perhaps McDonald's, and he orders, and as he comes around to the window, it looks like no one's driving the car. It's hilarious, and he's got all these different cameras set up around the car, <laughs> so that you get the, 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 the reaction of the employee um, who's about to drop off the food and, and take money. And when the guy drives around the corner and the, and the person is beginning to realize what he or she is seeing, they just freak out. I mean, and it's hilarious, their reaction. Sometimes they just drop the food, close the window, and leave. Other times, they just sit there and stare. One lady will peer her head all the way into the car, and she's just looking around like, oh my word, I think I'm seeing a ghost, you know. Most of the time, they'll grab other employees and like, you've got to see this. 
no one is driving the car. And they just freak out. And then the guy kind of ramps up their anxiety and fear by putting his foot on the gas and just drives off after, they've, after he's been sitting there for a while. And then they just freak out all over again. And it's, it's a hilarious prank that I would recommend that you go this afternoon and watch if you want a good laugh. But I saw that video and I realized that that actually gets, in, that, that fear actually gets inside all of us. And when I look at my life, and I see all the struggle, and I see all the sin, and I see all the brokenness, when I look at my, my, my place in this world where there is just rampant brokenness and injustice, I sometimes begin to think, is there someone really behind the wheel of the universe? Because a lot of times I freak out when I look at my life and I see the brokenness and I see the sin and I see the injustice and I see that things look like they're falling apart. And I wonder, is there someone really behind the wheel of the universe that is in control of all things? And if there is, does this person actually care? And the wonderful thing about the the letter of Revelation, and one of the big themes in the entire book is is that things are not as they seem. One of the big themes in the book of Revelation is that things are not as they seem. Look again with me at verse 1. Jesus takes John by the hand and he says, Come up here and let me show you what must take place after this. And then in verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. John invites, Jesus invites John into the heavenly control tower. And what John sees is a throne. But it's not just any throne. It's an occupied throne. And what normal, struggling Christians need in this broken and fallen world is to see that the throne is occupied. That's what we need. That's what alleviates our fears and our worries, especially when I look around at this world and think and begin to think, is there someone in control? And John, time and time again, says, things are not as they seem. I've been into the center of all reality, and there is a throne, and it's occupied. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to look at two things. I want to look at the position of the throne And then I'm going to look at the person on the throne and then deal with a couple of applications, some so what questions. So the first thing that I want to do is look at the position of the throne. The dominant image or one of the dominant images in the book of Revelation is the reality of the throne. That word appears over 40 times in the book. And it appears 14 times in chapter 4 alone. It, It almost sounded redundant. The throne, the throne, the throne. So what do we learn about the position of the throne? And this is pretty fascinating. John uses all sorts of prepositions to actually get at the idea of the position of the throne. You have around the throne 24 elders. 
From the throne come flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. Before the throne is a sea of glass. Behind the throne is a rainbow. Around the throne are these (laughs) crazy (laughs) living creatures with eyeballs all around and inside. And I don't know what to make of those things, but they're around the throne. So you have things before, behind, you have things under, you have things around. And what is John painting a picture for us? What's the point? When Jesus takes John by the hand and he takes him up into the throne room, Jesus is showing John that the throne room is the center of absolutely everything. Heaven is heaven because of the throne. Everything centers around the throne because the throne is where, because the one who sits on the throne is the one who has all beauty, all honor, all glory, all wisdom, all power, all might. In other words, the first thing that we, we need to see is not a plan for our lives. The first thing that we need to see is a person who's on the throne, who's at the center of all reality. Now, why are we being, a sh- being shown a vision of the centrality of the occupied throne? Well, think about it. If the occupied throne is the center of all reality, I think that God is showing us something that is true about all of our hearts. That there's certain things that are true about how we show up in this world. If the th- If the throne is the center of all reality, God is showing us kind of a window into what all of our hearts are like. Whether you're anxious or fearful or doubtful, our lives will always bend towards things that we enthrone. Our lives, no matter where you are, Christian, unchristian, our lives will always bend towards the things that we enthrone. Whatever you think has power, Whatever you think has beauty or stability or happiness, our hearts will always enthrone what we find lovely and beautiful, the thing that will give us whatever will provide satisfaction and fulfillment. Think about it. It's one thing to want to be liked, to be appreciated, to be respected. It's one thing to want to have a good reputation, to have integrity, to for people to know that you're an honest person. But it's quite another thing when we enthrone the opinion and approval of other people. We'll become enslaved to things and work really hard to obtain those things. It's one thing to love our work. To want to be productive with wherever God has placed you in terms of a vocation. It's a good thing to want to be fruitful in our labors. It was the cultural mandate, be fruitful in multiple. That's a, something Scripture commends. It's a good thing, but it's quite another thing to enthrone our work. Because when anything conflicts with it, like family or friends, they will always lose to our work if you've enthroned it. It's one thing to love our children. I have a, an 11-month-old and 24-day, 
He'll be one next week. I can't do the math. And I never understood, and of course, my parents always told me, just wait till you have kids and you'll understand. And the cliches are true, right? I understand how someone could love a child and want to do everything for them and want to see their best and want to raise them. It's one thing to love serve our children. It's another thing to enthrone them and to bow down to their every agenda and every need and every want. Our lives will always bend towards the things that we enthrone. And what John is showing us in Revelation 4 is that there is only one throne. And it's already occupied. (laughs) And it ain't me who sits on it. Nor is it you. And this is why we do what we do every Sunday morning. Because wandering saints are oftentimes forgetful saints. And we need to be reminded that there is but one throne. And the God of the universe is the one who sits on it. Heaven knows this. The position of the throne is the center of all reality. But what about the person on the throne? Who is this person? Look at verse 3. And he who sat on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and the appearance of Carnelian. John is taken into the very heart of reality, and he sees the one who occupies the throne. Now, just let that wash over you for a second. John is taken to the center of all reality, and he sees who occupies the throne. And it'd be quite amazing to actually have seen John after this. Like, tell us what you saw, John. Well, I saw a throne, and I saw the one who sits on the throne. What did he look like? Jasper, which is just a translucent kind of a color. He looked like carnelian, which is just a a shade of red. And you're you're beginning to, to kind of rub up against the fact that John, he sees the one who's on the throne, but he can't articulate He's looking for things to articulate what is really indescribable. And it is quite amazing to think that John is trying to convey the unobstructed beauty of the one who sits on the throne. That he is brilliant and majestic. He literally is indescribable. And the question is this, why is it important Why is it important for us to see that the one who is on the throne, who is God, why is it important for us to see that the one who orchestrates and controls and has all authority is also beautiful? In other words, why is John showing us that the sovereign Lord who sits at the center of all reality is also beautiful? unmistakably beautiful. You ever thought about that? I sometimes think that in our circles, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, which is biblical and true, and I preach it wholeheartedly, but sometimes there's a tendency 
that when we talk about the sovereignty of God, it comes across as cold and unemotional. Especially when we use the sovereignty of God as like axioms of of comfort for people when they're going through difficult times. (laughs) Hey, God is sovereign, everything's going to be okay, is not the best approach to pastoral ministry. I learned that early on. And I find it fascinating that John has a picture of the sovereign Lord, but wrapped in this sovereignty is his beauty. And the question is, is why is John showing us the beauty of the sovereign Lord? There's many different reasons, I'm sure, but I think that when you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, it actually soothes our busy and anxious hearts. I came across, a, 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 there's a podcast I listen to often, and during this podcast, this, this man was quoting um, an older Christian lady who was, who was looking back on her life. And she said this to God as she's surveying all of her life. She said, you gazed on me and you smiled. An older Christian lady, when she looks back on her life, and she says this to God, she says to God, you gazed on me, and you smiled. And, and man, when the first time I heard that, it just, it undid me. Because I, <laughs> as a minister of the gospel, one who believes in the good news, the good news that Jesus Christ did for sinners what sinners could not do for themselves, and was happy to do it, I sometimes think, That when Jesus looks at me, he does not smile. Because I'm constantly confronted with my own sin, my own brokenness. How I fail at being a husband and a father and a friend and a pastor. And I sometimes feel that when Jesus looks at me, he does not smile. And I don't know if that's you this morning too. But one of the reasons why we gaze at the beauty of Jesus is because it soothes our busy and anxious hearts that I can know that when Jesus looks at me as his child, even a child who's dirty at times and has failed and has been disappointing, who hasn't done a whole lot in the area of sanctification, I can still know that when Jesus looks at me, he smiles because he loves me. So the first reason that we gaze at the beauty of Jesus is because it soothes our anxious hearts. But secondly, gazing on God's beauty actually confronts our spiritual boredom. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, sin is always, in some sense, a life of boredom. One of the crucial battles of the Christian life is discovering the true ugliness of sin and coming to know that sin wants destruction. It wants to destroy us. And as one writer put it, we all have a beauty thirst that must be quenched no matter what. And if that's the case, that's the reason why men, they'll leave their wives for 
another one. Because they're spiritually bored. Or that's why people will constantly check their bank account because their beauty thirst says it'll only be quenched when I see a particular number in my bank account. Or the pastor who constantly longs for the approval of his congregation. Jonathan Edwards once said the only way that our spiritual boredom is confronted and dealt with, he says the only way is when we sit and behold the beauty of the Lord because when we see the beauty of the one who sits on the throne, he is the only one who, as Edward says, could happify us. I love that expression. Jesus and his beauty is the only person who can happify us. Gazing on the, upon the beauty of the Lord is the only thing that will confront our spiritual boredom. But thirdly, gazing on God's beauty, it actually transforms our witness. In other words, when we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, we become agents of His beauty in this broken and oftentimes ugly and cruel world. A couple of weeks ago, I, I met a lady who I will call Mrs. P., And I was at her place of work, and we started talking, and we both realized that we were Christians. And so she began to tell me her story, and it was an unbelievable story that I I don't think I'll ever get over. She started telling me um, about her older son one night who had gotten off work, and he went to see some friends who had a a shop next to a gas station. So he was going to get some gas, go in see some of his friends, went in, saw his friends, left, went to go get gas, and went in to, to pay, and as he was coming out, he was confronted by some guys who were attempting to rob him. And the guys and his friends next door saw the, the, the thing that was about to take place, and so they called this guy's, uh, they called Mrs. P's other son, the, the little brother. And he showed up, and there was a, somewhat of a fight had already broken out. And when the little brother had showed up, he, he recognized the guys that were trying to rob his older brother. And he said, hey, don't you remember who we are? He said, my mom bought you food when you didn't have anything to eat. She put clothes on your back when you didn't have any clothes. My mom actually bought you Christmas presents when she knew that you wouldn't have anything to open on Christmas Day. Don't you, rem- don't you recognize who we are? And the guys slowly began to realize who they were robbing. And so they were, in the, and they were in the process of reconciling. When all of a sudden another car pulled up. And it was a car full of another group of guys who had been robbed earlier by this group of guys that were trying to rob the brothers. And they opened fire on the group. And the younger brother had grabbed the older brother. And they got split up, and the younger brother went one way, and the older brother went the other way, and the older brother was shot to death. And Mrs. P buried her son, and she told me that the night of the accident, the night that her son died, this is what she prayed to God. She said, May I reflect your glory and trust you in this, so that people 
will see your beauty and love through me. That was her prayer. Fast forward three years later. Mrs. P's out running errands, and she runs into the officer who had showed up on the scene that night. And she went up to her immediately, and she said, I've never forgotten your face, and I've never forgotten what you did. He says, I remember the night that your son died. When you showed up on the scene, we wouldn't let you near the body because it was a homicide investigation, and so we couldn't let you near your son. And you didn't fight and you didn't resist us, but you got on your knees near the body. And you began to pray. And this is what she prayed. She first prayed, I thank God for my son. And then she said, Father, forgive these men, for they know not what they do. And then she said, bless them. And please allow their moms to never have to go through what I'm currently going through at this moment. At this point, I'm, I'm bawling my eyes out in her place of business. And the officer said, he goes, it was the first homicide that I have ever done where we never had to call for backup. Because he told this to Mrs. B, he said, because when you showed up, the place was overwhelmed by peace. And Mrs. P looked at him and she said, it was not my peace that overwhelmed the place. It was the peace of the Holy Spirit. You see, when you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, you become agents of beauty in this oftentimes cruel and broken world. When you gaze upon his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his love, guess what? You begin to reflect what Jesus is like. You become the hands and feet of Jesus in a broken and fallen world. Position of the throne, the person on the throne. So what can we do with this? How can we apply it this morning? First, let me aim this at non-Christians. If you are a non-Christian here please know that, one, we're so glad that you're here. We love to know that there are people investigating the truth claims of Christianity. We want you to know that we're glad that you're here. But perhaps you're here, and you think that your sin is so bad that a God like this could never look upon you and smile. Perhaps you're here, and you've never pulled the trigger and shot someone but you've had an abortion. And you think that God could never look upon you and smile because of what you've done. Or perhaps you're here and you've just done things with your body that you're deeply ashamed of, deeply embarrassed of, and you think that God could never look at you and smile. Well, I've got some really good news because... One of the things that we see in the throne room is that God who sits on the throne is holy, holy, holy. No darkness, no evil, no sin is in God. But did you notice that Jesus takes John 
And John walks into the center of all reality, the holy of holies. Like, the earthly tabernacle was the copy of the heavenly tabernacle. And Jesus takes John, a sinful mortal man, and he walks into the very presence, unobstructed holiness of God. And John is not struck dead. Why? You remember what was behind the throne? It was a rainbow. The only other place we see a rainbow in scriptures in, in scriptures in Genesis, where after God, because of the sin of his people, he wipes away the earth with a flood, and he promises Noah that I will never do this again. And the sign of his mercy and faithfulness to his people is what? It's a rainbow. And the word for rainbow, actually, in the Hebrew is the word for battle bow. This is amazing. And the battle bow is not cocked and aimed at earth, at sinners who deserve it, but it's cocked and aimed where? At heaven. What you need to see in the throne room is God broadcasting the fact that he is a God of mercy. Because on the cross, God let loose his wrath, not on sinners, but on Jesus. Flowing from the throne room is a rainbow which is broadcasting to sinners people who enthrone their careers, who enthrone their children, who enthrone sex, who enthrone all sorts of things. He's broadcasting to the world that I'm a God of mercy and that you, by the blood of my Son, can enter into my presence and live and know that I smile upon those whom I love. That's some really good news. But what about if you are here and you are a Christian. Did you notice what John sees before the throne? There's a sea of glass like crystal. And in the Bible, the sea has always represented darkness and dysfunction and chaos. And later in the book of Revelation, the great beast that comes to wreak havoc on the people of God comes up out of the sea. But before the throne, the sea is calmed. Which means that all of our fears, all of our anxiety, all of our insecurities and disappointments, they are calmed before the throne of God. In other words, Jesus will take all our bad attempts at following him. He'll take all our bad attempts at worshiping him, at praying. He'll take all our failures and everything that is wrong. And in the throne room, everything becomes beautiful. This is what Jesus makes possible. So if you are anxious and fearful and doubtful and you have disappointments and you feel despair and despondent, notice that the sea is calmed before the throne. Which means that that's an invitation. Jesus is inviting you still to come with whatever you have and bring them before the throne so that they too may be calmed 
and beautified. Therefore, we have nothing to worry or fear in this life because the one who sits on the throne is beautiful and he's merciful. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that from the center of all reality, you are broadcasting to a broken and fallen world that you are a God who is incredibly merciful, who is incredibly gracious and loving. And we thank you that this wonderful picture we have in Revelation 4 shows us that your sovereignty is wrapped in beauty. And so it's our prayer this morning that you would take our fears and our doubts, whatever things that we are struggling with, that we would bring them to you and have our hearts calmed, have our faith encouraged, have our assurance strengthened, And so you know where every heart is this morning. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take these eternal truths and that you would write them upon all of our hearts. Would you do that for us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.